0: Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 43. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention.
1: After Iran retaliated for the Soleimani strike, no Americans were injured. We now know at least 11 U.S. service men were airlifted from Iraq. Can you explain the discrepancy?
2: No, uh, I heard that they had headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious. So you don't not very a potential
1: traumatic brain injury serious?
2: Uh, they told me about it numerous days later. You'd have to ask the Department of Defense. No, I don't consider them very serious injuries relative to other injuries that I've seen. I've seen what Iran has done with their roadside bombs to our troops. I've seen people with no legs and with no arms. I've seen people that were horribly, horribly injured in uh, that area, that war. Uh, In fact, many cases put those bombs put there by Soleimani, who's no longer with us. Uh, I consider them to be
0: really bad injuries. No, I do not consider that to be bad injuries. No, that's President Mayhem telling the entire world that he doesn't think U.S. service members who suffer from traumatic brain injuries had anything very serious happen to them. It's outrageous. It's shameful. It's ignorant. And of course, it's wrong. The Department of Veterans Affairs and hundreds of thousands of post 9 11 veterans disagree. The VA and Pentagon have spent billions of dollars on TBI, traumatic brain injury, literally billions, on research, screening, and treatment for TBI, an injury which impacts hundreds of thousands of veterans. These are not just headaches, they're the signature injury of our forever war, the signature injury of Iraq and Afghanistan, and the signature injury for millions of our post-9-11 generation of veterans. And the biggest challenge with TBIs is that they're unseen. So Trump's ignorance was everyone's ignorance decades ago. But now, in 2020, we know. So it's incredibly counterproductive for our commander-in-chief To downplay the devastating impact that these invisible injuries have had on a generation of veterans. According to the VA, more than 408,000 TBIs among service members were recorded between 2000 and early 2019. And now, after a press conference from the president telling us there were no U.S. casualties after the January 8th Iranian missile attack, we now find out that was not true. And it's a painful reminder that casualty doesn't only mean killed in action, it also means wounded. At least 11 U.S. troops were wounded in that Iranian attack, and our government told us there were zero. Our troops are guardians. They stand watch, and often they take fire. Some of that fire is visible, some is not. But they take the shots, and they take the fire. 2020 is off to a fiery start for our troops, and for all Americans. The fires are rising all around us. Fires are engulfing Australia. Friendly fire on the 2020 campaign trail. Government forces firing on protesters in Hong Kong, Iran, and Iraq. The fire of rocket attacks and enemy infiltrations are hitting our troops from Kenya to Kabul. Intense protests in Richmond, Virginia continue to raise the heat. But thankfully, no fire this time. And back in Washington... The fires of the last few years have grown to a roar, and the political fires now engulf the entire capital and the entire country. The impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump has begun, and it feels like it's all closing in.
3: There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the to the, thief.
0: the walls of our country are being tested from the outside and from within. But even when the enemies are at the gates, and especially when the enemies are at the gates, there are guardians that hold the line, standing watch on the ramparts of America, literally and ethically. Our troops in uniform, guarding our bases, bridges, and tunnels. The pilots guarding the skies above us. Our public defenders guarding the rule of law. The judges guarding our constitution. The firefighters and cops guarding our homes and our safety. The diplomats guarding our good name, the activists guarding our precious planet, the journalists guarding our public trust, the teachers now guarding our precious children, and the intelligence community guarding our power grids, our national interests, and our elections. They're all along the watchtower, guarding America from threats foreign and domestic. There are guardians along that watchtower, often in darkness even on holidays, often for inexcusably low salaries and often in secret. They are the guardians of our great country and the guardians of our future. And in this episode, we'll talk to one of them. That's one of many that will never get the credit they deserve. The officers of the CIA that work tirelessly, often in secret, to protect the American people and all the agents, officers, and employees of what is often referred to as the intelligence community, or the IC. The IC is led by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, which is headed by the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, and the DNI reports to the President. You hear it a lot, but it's composed of 17 different organizations, to include the CIA and FBI, and also the National Security Agency, the NSA, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and lesser-known members like the Department of Energy's Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence and the U.S. Coast Guard Intelligence. But the intelligence community's stated mission is to collect, analyze, and deliver foreign intelligence and counterintelligence information to America's leaders so they can make sound decisions to protect our country. Our customers include the president, policymakers, law enforcement, and the military. That's the intelligence community's stated mission. They're often the invisible line that guards and defends us all. They yield incredible power and have incredible responsibility. But beneath all the acronyms, spy stories, and recent political attacks, the intelligence community is people, patriotic Americans who care deeply about this country and have dedicated their lives, often a great personal sacrifice, to defending it. In a modern world dominated by selfies and endless social media posts about everything we see, do, and eat, the members of the intelligence community are a stark contrast. They work in silence, with no notoriety, often in dangerous and demanding circumstances, and lately, even more demanding circumstances, as the president continues to attack them, to discredit them, to politicize them, to misrepresent them, while global threats ranging from Korean intercontinental ballistic missiles to Iranian cyber assaults to Russian attacks on our elections all increase. The demands on the men and women of the intelligence community have never been higher. And in many ways, they've never been more misunderstood. But they're the guardians on our watchtowers at a time when more and more enemies are approaching and the wind begins to howl. Now, whether you see them as the riders approaching or the guardians on the gate, depending upon how you hear the story and the song, they're there in service of America, in service of our future, in service of our children, and they are often nameless and faceless. But in this episode, we'll go behind that curtain and talk to a leader who's worked for almost two decades in the CIA at hotspots around the world and here at home. A leader whose courage and discipline represent the best values of the intelligence community and our country, which also includes challenging it and challenging the president who has the awesome responsibility of yielding their awesome power. True public service is not an event. It's not a tour of duty. It's a lifestyle. It's a life choice. And it's often a one-way ticket to a place that not everyone wants to go and that sometimes you can never come back from. But among those that make that choice, that answer that call are some of the best of us, and yes, some angry Americans. Yael Eisenstadt made that choice. She grew up in liberal Northern California, in Silicon Valley, and the intelligence community was not a likely path. But we can be thankful it's one she chose. And the spirit of service and leadership that guided her to the CIA, guided her to continue to find ways to serve, to include going into the belly of another powerful, often criticized, Bohemoth of Influence on the Fabric of America, Facebook, where she hoped to continue to serve America by going deep inside the tech giant to change it. And she was named Global Head of Elections Integrity Operations, a new title for a critical job, and one that she quickly left. And you'll hear why. You'll also hear the harrowing story of how and why she chose to go public about her status as a CIA officer. You'll learn what historic and headline-grabbing moment pushed her to the point of penning an op-ed in the New York Times, challenging the commander in chief. We recorded this conversation live in an awesome studio audience at Betaworks in New York. Betaworks is a startup studio that makes essential products that thoughtfully combine art and science. It's a cool, innovative, inspiring place that brings people together to make positive change. They built tech products from the ground up like Giphy, Dots, Bitly, Chartbeat, and TweetDeck. And their core belief is to experiment early and often, the idea that betas work. They've also run accelerators for startups, camps that allow them to focus and batch companies building frontier technology like bots, AI, verbal computing, and augmented reality. For the last 10 years, Betaworks has invested in early-stage startups, including Tumblr, Kickstarter, Medium, and Gimlet. And they have a $50 million venture fund. Betaworks is a place that makes inspiring and impactful things here in America, which we need a lot more of right now. Because as the world remains rightfully focused on the impeachment trial of our president, it's important to remember that our enemies are watching, our enemies are celebrating, and in many ways, our national back door is wide open. While partisans squabble and snipe in the early hours of the morning on C-SPAN, Russian agents are potentially attacking polling sites in Ohio and Florida. Iranian proxies are researching soft targets in New York and Washington, D.C. North Korean military planners are calculating missile trajectories to Honolulu and San Francisco. And homegrown domestic terrorists are buying illegal guns and writing manifestos. That's not to scare you. It's to ground you in the reality that while all this shit is going on in D.C., our forever wars continue, our domestic threats remain, and our troops... Diplomats, humanitarians, and business people remain at increased risk of foreign attacks. As America rips itself apart, maybe more than any other time in our modern history, the world is watching. And thankfully, that still includes many allies. And unfortunately, it includes an increasing number of enemies. And maybe, most importantly, it includes many who are still on the fence. But no matter where they sit, inside our gates, pounding at the walls, or far off in the distance... It's the guardians of our democracy that could mean the difference. And it's not just CIA officers like Yale. They're activists and dedicated citizens like you. America's a team game, especially in the playoffs. And we need every player with their head in the game, focused and doing all they can. Now, more than ever, America needs all of us. and needs all of us to stay vigilant. So before we go deep with IL, and before I give you a powerful way to turn your righteous energy into positive impact, and before I share some of our very exciting upcoming shows and live events with Ambassador Susan Rice, Megan McCain, and Henry Rollins, as the rounds continue to fly, as the flares fire overhead, and as the moats are dug and the drawbridges are raised, there are some important issues that have me angry, have many others angry, and should have everyone angry. And of course, it starts with impeachment. Hopefully, you're eating your oatmeal. Meaning, hopefully, you're watching it on C-SPAN, passing up the jelly donuts and the candy of cable news. Or, if you want to take some acid for breakfast, go watch the coverage on Fox. But impeachment's on, and there's never been a more important time for you to decide for yourself without the spin and slicing of cable news pundits, partisans, and hacks. Democrats are still angry. Republicans are still angry. Cable news still ain't angry because they're continuing to see sky-high ratings. Coffee maker sales are up because this shit is boring as hell sometimes. But just like studying your calculus in high school, it's painful, but important. And Trump, he thinks he's doing great.
2: We're doing very well. I got to watch enough. I thought our team did a very good job. But honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the
0: material. He thinks he's winning. Now, that clip was tweeted by Representative Val Demings, Democrat from Florida's 10th congressional district. She's one of the impeachment managers for the Democrats and the former chief of police in Orlando. The second article of impeachment was for obstruction of Congress, covering up witnesses and documents from the American people. And the president, in that quote, not only confessed to it, he bragged about it. He said, honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. I've said it before. The longer he's in office, the more shit will come out. The more shit he'll say, the more guardrails he'll hit, and more likely, the more reasons there'll be to impeach him. The question is, how much of our house can he burn down before we stop him? How many of our allies will be abandoned? How many lives will be lost? Jason Crow of Colorado is an impeachment manager for the Democrats and also a 40-year-old Army veteran, and he broke it down.
4: The House managers strongly support this amendment to subpoena key documents from the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB. These documents go directly to one of President Trump's abuses of power his decision to withhold vital military aid from a strategic partner that's at war to benefit his own personal re-election campaign. But why should that matter? Why should anybody care? Why should I care? Before I was a member of Congress, I was an American soldier serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. And although some years have passed since that time, there are still some memories that are seared in my brain. One of those memories was scavenging scrap metal on the streets of Baghdad in the summer of 2003 that we had to bolt onto the side of our trucks Because we had no armor to protect against roadside bombs. So when we talk about troops not getting the equipment that they need when they need it, it's personal to me.
0: All of us who were in Iraq in
4: 2003 remember. It's personal
0: for us too, and it should be personal for all Americans. It's bigger than politics, it's bigger than party, and it's bigger than Trump. Lev Parnas turned on Trump this week, and he turned on Giuliani, who, by the way, has not butt-dialed me recently, but you never know. And Rachel Maddow had a massive exclusive that included this damning clip. Uh, the message that I was supposed to, that I gave Sergey Schaefer was a very uh, harsh message that was told to me to give it to him in a very harsh way, not in a pleasant way. Who
5: told you to give it to him uh, in a harsh way?
0: Mayor Giuliani Rudy yeah. told me uh, after, uh, uh, you know, meeting at the president at the White House. He called me. His message was, it wasn't just military aid, it was all aid. Basically, the relationships would be sour, that you would, that we would stop giving him any kind of aid. That, uh, unless. Unless that there was an announcement. was well, several things. There were several demands at that point. A, the most important one was the announcement of the Biden investigation. Lev Parnas is a name you're going to hear a lot of if you haven't already, because he turned on Trump this week. And even though he's been photographed with him, Trump says he doesn't know him. But that interview was the highest rated show in Rachel Maddow's history. 4.5 million viewers. Beating Fox News' Hannity in its time slot and making it the most watched cable news program of the evening and bringing in the highest ratings in the show's 11 year history. So, America was watching, and not just Democrats. Americans from all backgrounds are watching, and Americans from all backgrounds are increasingly angry. If you want to break from that anger and more Maddow, go back to episode 7 of this podcast. Maddow shares how she approaches these kinds of massive moments, how she preps for these kinds of interviews and how she breaks it all down. But America is watching. And for the most part, they're probably bored. But there have been some notable exceptions. Under the pressure, some leaders are shining, and others are being revealed. And there's pressure all around. Some can handle it with grace, and some cannot. And here's a good example of a bad example in leadership.
4: Senator McSally, should the Senate consider new evidence as part of the impeachment trial? Man, if you're a
3: liberal hack, I'm not talking to you.
0: That's Arizona Senator Martha McSally calling Manu Raju of CNN a liberal hack. Now, this is the person serving in the Senate seat of the great John McCain. What a contrast. No matter how you feel about CNN, you gotta recognize, our children are watching. Every leader in Congress should always remember that especially now. And CNN's Jake Tapper asked a member of the McCain family for thoughts on McSally's remarks. And the response was, there's no love lost between our family and her. McSally hasn't exactly been a positive example in the past either. Among her other slights, she didn't even mention Senator McCain during the signing of the defense bill named after him while he was on his deathbed. It was shameful. And in two weeks, my guest will be Megan McCain, Senator McCain's daughter. I'm pretty sure she'll have a thing or two to say about that and much more. Because McSally's behavior is just shameful. Speaking of shameful, as the impeachment and MLK weekend intersected, there was this from White House advisor Kellyanne Conway.
5: What is President Trump doing to observe King
1: Day? Well, uh, Martin Luther King Day today. Well, I can tell you that the president is... uh, preparing for Davos and agrees with many of the things that Dr. Martin Luther King stood for and agreed with for many years, I- including uh, unity and equality. And he's not the one trying to tear the country apart through an impeachment process and the and lack of substance that really is very shameful at this point. I've I've held my opinion on it for a very long time, but when you see the articles of impeachment that came out, I don't think it was within Dr. King's vision to have Americans drag through a process where the president is going not going to be removed from office, uh, is not being charged with bribery, extortion, high crimes or misdemeanors. And uh, I think that anybody who cares about end justice for all on today or any day of the year will appreciate the fact that the president now will have a full throttle defense on the facts. And everybody should have that. Um, I, this morning, was reading some of the lesser-known passages uh, by Dr. King, and I I appreciate the fact that we as a nation um, respect him by giving him his own day, and I'm happy to share a birthday with his day.
0: So, in her answer, Conway speculates that the late civil rights leader would side with Donald Trump on impeachment. Wow. Conway and Trump continue to say and do things that still manage to surprise us. And in a week where we recognize Martin Luther King's heroic leadership, it bears noting that a new Washington Post-Ipsos poll showed that more than 8 in 10 Black Americans say they believe Trump is a racist and that he's made racism a bigger problem in the country. 9 in 10 disapprove of his job performance overall. And it's pretty damn easy to understand why. And check this out. On MLK Day, despite all that was going on in the world, according to the White House schedule, President Trump had nothing on his public schedule to honor Martin Luther King Day. Nothing. Typical, yet still shameful, especially given all that's happening at the same time in Richmond, Virginia. Then, at almost 5 o'clock, President Trump and Vice President Pence made an unannounced trip to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in D.C. They stood in front of it for about 30 seconds with their heads bowed, before turning and leaving without making any remarks. 30 seconds, that was it. Trump continues to do and say things that still manage to surprise us. But the impeachment has had its share of surprising moments too. And even a now historical Biggie Smalls lyric reference.
3: Yes. And we are here, sir, to follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the constitution, And present the truth to the American people. That is why we are here, Mr. Seculo. And if you don't know,
0: now you know. If you don't know, now you know. And B.I.G. is also going in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if you didn't know. But New York Democrat Hakeem Jeffries quoted B.I.G. on the floor of the Senate and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has announced its 35th annual class of inductees honoring six musical acts, which includes the Notorious B.I.G. and Depeche Mode, the Doobie Brothers, Whitney Houston, Nine Inch Nails, and T-Rex, as well as veteran rock journalist, producer, and artist manager John Landau. Now, the inducted musicians were chosen from a ballot of 16 finalists, which means fans of a lot of bands are going to be Angry Americans. Fans of Pat Benatar, Dave Matthews Band, Judas Priest, Craftwork, MC5, Motorhead, Rufus featuring Chaka Khan, Todd Rundgren, Soundgarden, and Thin Lizzy. They're all going to have to wait at least another year for Rock Hall validation. Although that would be one hell of a combined show, fans of those bands are going to have to wait at least another year for Rock Hall validation. And Trump, and increasingly the disintegrating Republican Party, is also going to have to wait to get validation. They won't get it from George George Conway. Husband of Kellyanne Conway, frequent and extremely effective critic of Trump and another guy on the watchtower, is a good person to follow on Twitter, and he continues to bomb away. I mean, Republican senators need to look themselves in the mirror and
5: look themselves in the mirror and think of what it's going to be like five years from now, ten. what their legacies are going to be. And the fact that this evidence is going to keep coming out. Truth has a way of coming out. We've seen it with with, with the FOIA requests that have produced these documents that are, that are, that are, that are quite interesting. Yeah, new documents we, came out last night. And last night, we, we we're going to get books from people. When, he, when Trump is gone, people are going to start telling their stories. And there may be further investigations of this. The truth will come out sooner or later. There are documents we, that haven't been seen. You know, there are witnesses that haven't testified. Their stories
0: will sooner or later come out. The truth does have a way of coming out. I do think that's true, and it's coming out more and more by the day. The American public's not stupid. They're sometimes slow, but they're not stupid. Eventually, they come around, and 51% of Americans now say the Senate should remove Trump from office. In a new CNN poll, nearly 6 in 10 women say the Senate should remove Trump from office, and 42% of men agree. Among African Americans, 86% say Trump should be removed. Look, no matter what their background, many Americans have just had enough of president mayhem. And maybe, just maybe, there are some teachable moments in all this mess. And a big one came from Chief Justice John Roberts, of all people, channeling some Judge Judy and appropriately giving everyone a talking to.
6: I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the president's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, in the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word "pettifogging," and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that high a standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should
0: remember where they are. Pettyfogging. Yes, pettyfogging, which means insignificant or petty. That's a word I had to Google, and you probably would have too if I didn't just tell you. But there's nothing pettyfogging about the stakes we face, all of us, as this impeachment trial continues to unfold. Yep. Stakes is high, every day, every way, and even in our sports. And the intersection of sports and politics continues, and it was another big week in the NFL. Nobody kneeled, Trump stayed pretty quiet, he didn't attend any of the games, and the 49ers acted like Colin Kaepernick never took him to a Super Bowl that they almost won.
4: Playoffs? Don't talk about it. Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs?
0: But two massive games, and the stage is now set for what could be a Super Bowl for the ages. It was a spectacular and inspiring run by the cyborg running back Derrick Henry, underdog surprise QB Ryan Tannehill, and likely coach of the year Mike Vrabel. But that run has come to an end, and the Kansas City Chiefs did it. They finally did not bomb out of the playoffs, and behind coach Andy Reid and rock star quarterback Patrick Mahomes, they're going to their first Super Bowl in 50 years. They beat the Titans 35-24 at home. And I'm really happy for all you Chiefs fans. As a guy who grew up watching and respecting Christian Okoye, Derek Thomas, and Joe Montana, I've always rooted for you guys. And after all these decades, you deserve it. And all-pro tight end Travis Kelsey was particularly excited.
3: I'll tell you what, it's been seven years coming, baby. i learned one thing since I've been here. You gotta fight for your right. to fight!
0: Kelsey's excited with good reason. There are no angry Americans in Kansas City right now, or in San Francisco, because the Chiefs will face the fantastically talented, young, and exciting San Francisco 49ers, who in a statement game owned Aaron Rodgers and the Packers at home. The 49ers thumped the Packers 37-20. An all-pro tight end, the extremely colorful George Kittle is, as always, excited. What's the first thoughts that come to your mind?
5: Um, dreams do come true, um, you know. Just something that every little kid, you know, thinks about that loves the game of football, and just the fact that you know the entire uh, you know, these last three years, really all the hard work we put in, and it finally all comes to uh, this year. Uh, you know, every single win, uh, all the ups and downs, all the guys that came in for injured guys, and you know we still got the uh, the job done. Just, I'm so proud of this team, and uh, I'm really just looking forward to the next one.
0: And we're all looking forward to the next one. So the stage is set for Super Bowl 54 in Miami in less than two weeks which happens to be the day before the Iowa caucuses. It's the San Francisco 49ers against the Kansas City Chiefs. It's a clash of styles and a clash of iconic and historic NFL teams. And it's also a bit of a clash politically. Missouri in 2016 went to Donald Trump. He beat Hillary Clinton 56% to 37%. Romney also won Missouri against Obama, and McCain did the same narrowly back in 2008. But Missouri has been firmly red. And they're facing off against... California, one of the bluest states there is, and the home state and home city of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. California is a state that hasn't gone for a Republican candidate since George Bush Sr. in 1988 versus Mike Dukakis. In that race, Dukakis only won 10 states, and California wasn't even one of them. But that was a long time ago. In that same football season, 1998 to 1999, the 49ers won the Super Bowl, where they blew out the Denver Broncos 55 to 10, setting a record for points scored and the widest margin of victory in Super Bowl history. Joe Montana was awesome, and he set a bunch of Super Bowl records en route to his third Super Bowl MVP. The Niners also won it the year after in 1990. So it's blue state versus red state in what could be a classic, a classic that we now know will be interrupted by at least two commercials from presidential candidates, one from Trump and one from Bloomberg.
5: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
0: And marketing people are concerned. They're worried about what happens if their ad for GoDaddy or Papa John's or whatever appears just after or before a controversial commercial for Trump or Bloomberg. So it could potentially and immediately overshadow their brilliant marketing efforts. Now, Fox, which is broadcasting the game, has told marketers they're going to put the political ads in their own commercial segments to avoid detracting from other commercials. And a spokeswoman from Fox declined to comment on the actual commercial placements. But it's going to be trickier than avoiding a Nick Bosa pass rush because what could go wrong? Well, here was Trump welcoming the new national champions of college football, LSU, at the White House.
2: Coach, if you'd like, we can take whoever wants to come to the Oval Office. We'll take pictures behind the Resolute desk. It's been there a long time. A lot of presidents, some good, some not so good. But you got a good one now, even though they're trying to impeach the son of a bitch. Can you believe that? Got the greatest economy we've ever had, Joe. We got the greatest military, we rebuilt it, we took out those terrorists like, like your football team would have taken out those terrorists, right?
0: Yeah. That was President Mayhem, who can't even leave politics and himself out of handing a trophy to a football team. I said it last episode. Every press conference Trump holds is like one big geopolitical butt fumble. So good luck, Fox. We'll be watching. And while the world focuses on the trial of Trump and the media, gawkers, hacks, jokers and thieves all circle around the Capitol. the chaotic looming and troublesome cloud of the 2020 race for president continues to unfold so who's in who's out who's up who's down who's high on the rampart with a clear line of sight and who's scrambling to put out a fire in their ammo tent it's getting wild out there and john or jane snow still hasn't emerged seems farther and farther from emerging. Nobody's dropped out since our last episode, but one thing is constant. Democrats love to eat their own. They love it. They can't help themselves. It's like it's in their DNA. And man, it's painful to watch. Not just for Democrats, but for independents like me, and for all Americans. Faith without love. Dems love to eat their own, and that includes Hillary Clinton, who's back again, even though she's not running for president. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter about Hulu's forthcoming film Hillary, the former Secretary of State didn't let up about her 2016 primary opponent. She refused to commit to endorse and campaign for Sanders should he win the Democratic nomination this cycle.
2: You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you.
0: Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. That's what she said. She went even further in the documentary, claiming that Sanders got nothing done and called him a career politician. She even added, it's all just baloney, and I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. Now, definitely not helpful. Definitely not helpful. But reality check, she ain't wrong. Bernie Sanders did not get that much done. He was not well-loved, and he was damn difficult. I saw that myself when I tried to work with him on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, and his legislative record is way overinflated. He is an ideologue, he is a purist, and he hasn't played that well with others himself. But of course, Dems being Dems, they don't hold their fire, especially when there are I'm under attack fundraising emails to be sent out. So, of course, Bernie Sanders fired back.
6: Look, uh, right now, today, I'm dealing with impeachment. Uh, we are very proud that the American College of Physicians has just come on board for Medicare for All. Thousands of doctors did an open letter to the New York Times uh, on Medicare for All. Uh, And right now, what my focus is on is uh, outside of the impeachment trial, is doing everything I can to defeat the most dangerous president in modern American history. Uh, that is Donald Trump. That's really about all uh, so that. the thing, point. Secretary Clinton said was about uh, your supporters
1: and uh, criticizing them. Right, look, look, look! Secretary
6: Clinton is entitled to uh, you know her point of view. Uh, my job today is to focus on the impeachment trial. Uh, my job today is to put together a team that can defeat the most dangerous president. Uh, in the history of the United States of America. Why do you think the secretary is still talking about 2016?
0: That is a good question. To ask him. But the Democratic primary is a circular firing squad. So since the last episode, Bernie Sanders has apologized to Vice President Joe Biden for an op-ed written by one of his campaign surrogates that claimed that Biden has, quote, a big corruption problem. That was an op-ed that was pushed out by the Sanders campaign, which is becoming increasingly nasty. And it's been kind of fun to see how many Democrats come after me on Twitter claiming that Bernie Sanders isn't technically a Democrat. Well, Democrats only consider Bernie Sanders a Democrat when it's convenient. It's like the Marines claiming the Navy. They only want to be in the Navy when the Army plays Navy or they need a funding allocation. But Bernie is yours now, Democrats. You own him and all his grumpiness and all his ideological stubbornness. He's yours. Now, Democrats continue to eat their own. And that happened after Bernie attacked Elizabeth Warren and after Elizabeth Warren attacked Buttigieg, after they all attacked Biden. And when they get around to it, they sometimes remember to attack Trump. And here's the most hated candidate in the Democratic party, not named Trump, Tulsi Gabbard with some thoughts.
5: It's time to grow up. You know, this isn't high school. Uh, we're talking about real challenges that our country needs to address and the need for real leadership to focus on them not on what's going on in Washington and the schoolyard cliques or whatever else it may be. There are real issues that people are struggling with and they're wondering why are our leaders not working for us? This is why I'm running for president to change that because Washington is so disconnected from the reality of, of what people are dealing with every day. There, there are people dying because of this opioid epidemic every day. This is what our leaders should be focusing on among many other issues.
0: But she ain't exactly jumping out of that schoolyard anytime soon. No, Tulsi Gabbard is suing Hillary Clinton. Yep, Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard filed a defamation lawsuit against Hillary Clinton seeking $50 million in damages. She claimed the former Democratic presidential nominee, quote, carelessly and recklessly impugned her reputation when she suggested in October that one of the 2020 Democratic candidates is, quote, the favorite of the Russians. The lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. And it says it aims to hold Clinton and other, quote, political elites accountable for, quote, distorting the truth in the middle of a critical presidential election. It also says Gabbard suffered an economic loss that has to be proven at trial. And the week after this all happened, I talked to Tulsi Gabbard in an extended conversation on Angry Americans in episode 30. And I asked her about the Clinton controversy specifically. It's one of our most controversial pods for sure. But definitely go back and check it out if you haven't heard it. And there's one thing you also won't hear. He won't hear anybody attacking someone else. Bloomberg. But you're going to hear his money talk. That money is going to continue to talk throughout 2020. And I recommended you watch him closely. He's appealing. He's strategic. He's rich. And he's rising. Bloomberg jumped to fourth place in a new national poll. Now, the former New York City mayor is taking a different path to the White House than all the other candidates, and he's spending big. Now, the top contenders remain unchanged, according to the new Monmouth University survey, with Biden at the top with 30 percent, Sanders next with 23 percent, Warren coming up third with 14 percent. But Bloomberg has popped up to fourth with 9 percent, ahead of South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg with 6 percent and Amy Klobuchar with 5 percent. And that new poll also found that most Democratic voters feel Iowa and New Hampshire have way too much influence over the nominating process and would rather see a single national primary. Yep, agreed. So says this independent right here. But they also say that candidate gender is not a consideration in who would be the best choice to take on Trump, despite the continuing media storm over a conversation between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the subject. And interestingly, among the 9 presidential candidates asked about in the poll, Andrew Yang is the only one with a net positive rating among all voters nationwide. The dude's lovable, he's increasing in popularity, and it's in part because he's doing stuff like this. Now, if you don't know what you're listening to, that's Andrew Yang throwing axes in Osage, Iowa. He's dancing around, throwing axes, and landing them on the target. It's pretty impressive. But it's fun, it's approachable, and his social media game is on point. It's not just fun and games that are getting people behind Andrew Yang. It's also his courageous wife, Evelyn, who stepped up to lead recently, big time.
3: Evelyn Yang has a story so secret, she never even shared it with most of her own family. But spending time with her husband, presidential candidate Andrew Yang, on the campaign trail and hearing so much gratitude from voters for talking about
1: son Christopher's autism made her feel newly empowered. Meeting people and seeing the difference that we've been making already has moved me to share my own story about it, about sexual assault. It was 2012.
3: She was pregnant with her first baby and found an OBGYN who had a good reputation, Dr. Robert Haddon. Initially, she says her visits were routine, but after a few
1: months, things changed. It started with inappropriate questions around um, how intimate I was with my husband, sexual activity, just very inappropriate probing questions that were unrelated to my health. The examinations became longer, more frequent, um, and I learned that they were unnecessary.
0: Evelyn Yang revealed that she was sexually assaulted while pregnant. She was seven and a half months pregnant. She revealed publicly that she was assaulted by Dr. Robert Hayden in an interview on CNN. Until then, she had largely remained silent about the attack that occurred when she was seven months pregnant with her first child. But Evelyn Yang showed incredible courage and leadership. She also spoke out at the Women's March in Washington, and she's advocating and empowering others. She's turning her righteous anger into positive impact. And it's another reason why Andrew Yang continues to do well and surge. They seem like an amazing family, the kind of family we can all look up to and root for. And there are times coming up when the Yangs are going to need it. Because the Super Bowl is February 2nd, Iowa caucus is February 3rd, the New Hampshire debate is February 7th, and then the New Hampshire primary is February 11th. We're going to be in Los Angeles for events on February 12th and February 14th with Henry Rollins, so check that out. But February is going to be interesting, and the friendly fire is going to continue. But before that happens, four candidates won't be in New Hampshire or Iowa because they'll be reporting for jury duty. They got yanked out of the field in Iowa just two weeks out. As the primary campaign rolled into Iowa, where everybody's got that final push with just a couple weeks left, there was a bigger political story that a handful of the leading candidates were stuck down in Washington for the president's impeachment trial in the Senate. Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, Bernie Sanders from Vermont, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, and Michael Bennett from Colorado, who you probably forgot is still running. But they were all confined to the Senate. They had to abandon the campaign trail to report for jury duty at the trial in Washington. So they traded the cold plains of Iowa for the stately climate control halls of Congress. But no matter where they are, the fights will continue. And the campaign rolls on. The fighters will be fighting, and the guardians will be standing watch. And that includes activists we can count on. And that also includes one especially powerful angry American who's back to have our back, John Stewart. I'm John Stewart. Post 9-11, there was
5: a long fight to get New York City's first responders appropriate help to pay for medical costs from the long-term toxic exposures the collapsed buildings in Lower Manhattan. The nation, and eventually Congress, stood behind our heroes. But now more than ever, we need to focus our support on the post-911 war veterans who've been suffering from the debilitating effects of the massive toxic burn pits they were exposed to during service overseas. The effects have been horrific. Affected veterans face increasingly complex health problems that have already left a growing number of them unable to work, 3.5 million veterans Service members may have been affected by our generation's Agent Orange. Health problems like lung diseases, cancers, toxic brain injuries—many of them very similar to what the 9/11 first responders have faced. Many of them dying as a result of these complications. If you're one of our vets who's suffering, then
0: we need to get in the fight for you now. Yep, John Stewart, a guardian for our guardians, is back. We covered burn pits on this show before, but burn pits are our generation's Agent Orange. In a recent survey of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America members, 82% of respondents were exposed to burn pits during their deployments overseas, and over 80% of those exposed reported having symptoms related to burn pit or toxin exposure. And Jon Stewart's stepping up again, just like he did on the 9-11 first responders bill with us last summer. He's showing the power of what an angry American can do. IAVA, Burn Pits 360, and other orgs are tackling this and need your help. And you can check out angryamericans.us for more. But our troops, our activists, our intelligence community are our guardians. And just like Jon Stewart, our troops, our activists, our intelligence community, they're our guardians. And they stand all along the Watchtower.
3: Kind of of the to
0: the that's what so many of our guests have been on this show from jt lewis to rob sarah to james laporta to Soledad o'brien all in different ways they're guardians on the watchtower of america every guest on this show has shaped america's past is impacting america's present and driving America's future. And our guest in this episode is no exception. Yael Eisenstadt is a patriot. She sits at the intersection of ethics, technology, policy, and society. She spent 18 years working around the globe as a CIA officer. She was a national security advisor to Vice President Biden and she was the global head of elections integrity operation in Facebook's business integrity organization. She's a diplomat, a corporate social responsibility strategist, and the head of a global risk firm. And she's now a visiting fellow at Cornell Tech's Digital Life Initiative, where she explores technology's effects on civil discourse and democracy. She's traveled the world and was named to Forbes' list of 40 women to watch over 40. She's also an adjunct professor at the NYU Center for Global Affairs and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She's been published in the New York Times, Wired, and all kinds of other places. And she's got a master's in international affairs from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And more than anything, she's passionate about using her background, her experience, and her skills to help foster reasoned civil discourse. She's adding light to all the heat. All along America's watchtower, guardians like Ya'al stand watch. When the United States got its independence after the revolution, we needed to defend our shores. Our defense fortifications were in awful condition, and there was rising threat of war all across Europe. So the first system of America's seacoast defense was born by an act of Congress on March 20th, 1794. It designated funds to construct a number of fortifications that would be known as the First System. It was a series of forts, and most First System forts were small, and with some exceptions had only a single tier of cannons on the roof of a fort. And four of the First System forts were rebuilds of colonial forts, like Fort Constitution in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Fort Independence in Boston, Massachusetts, Fort Wolcott in Newport, Rhode Island, and Fort Mifflin in Philadelphia. They were the early structures that would form the foundation of our national defense. And they housed some of our very first guardians. Guardians that have evolved into the sentinels of our democracy that we depend on today. Guardians who use hard power and soft. Laser-guided missiles, cyber walls, and unmanned drones. But most of all, they use people. CIA officers, Special Forces soldiers, State Department diplomats, USAID humanitarians. They're the guardians of our democracy. The Highlanders, the samurai, the X-Men. They stand the watch. They hold the line. They hold the door. Hold the door! And whether it's working at the CIA or inside a technology company, America needs the doors held now more than ever before. Hold the door! And in this conversation, and in this episode, we will, of course bring you a sturdy dose of the four eyes it's a bastion of integrity it's a rampart of information it's a cannon of impact and a watchtower of inspiration welcome to a look inside the cia inside technology inside america inside the future and inside a world of those who protect that future welcome to the watchtower welcome to angry americans episode 43 Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, and uh, visitors and hosts from the BetaWorks community, welcome to Angry Americans and welcome to another important, iconic, inspiring conversation with the great and powerful Yael Eisenstadt. Please give her a round of applause, everybody. So for folks listening, we are at Betaworks, which is an exceptionally uh, exciting and dynamic community here on the west side of New York. Thank you for, for hosting us. Um, we are on a cool stage, surrounded kind of between two ferns, actually. I don't know if this was intended. Zach Galifianakis fans will understand the reference. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us. And thank you for being here. And thank you for having this conversation with me. Welcome.
7: Thank you for having me. And again, I want you to do all my introductions for the rest of my life. It's very, very flattering.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of exciting to be able to introduce you properly because I feel like you probably had a real challenge introducing yourself (laughs) for a long period of time, right?
7: Yeah, actually, some of my friends can attest whenever people ask me, like, who are you or what do you do? It's always like kind of fumble through it. I'm not great at introducing myself.
0: We'll get into that in a second. One question I ask of everyone is what is your preferred Uh, adult beverage of choice and it's an insight into who you are and and every guest so I always ask what's your drink of choice and can you tell us please what is your choice and and why
7: yeah so I'm a vodka drinker um I just drink my vodka straight on the rocks putting a little water in it tonight just to pace myself because you know lots of people have tried to pour me more drinks to get my secrets out of me so the water's to pace myself but I'm a I'm a vodka on the rocks kind of gal.
0: Can I ask you, since you do have a background in the CIA, is there actually a class that you've taken that teaches you how to drink?
7: There isn't. But the the funny thing is I actually didn't drink until I had no other options once I got my security clearance. I didn't start drinking until I joined the CIA. Ah. You can make what you want from that statement.
0: But because you grew up in Northern California.
7: I did grow up in Northern right? California. So
0: you, I, I imagine that you experienced all that Northern California has to offer growing up.
7: I did experience all
0: that. <laughs> So I, I want to start there, yeah. How did, how did you go from Northern California to almost two decades working in the CIA? I know it was, you know, your life has been an incredible journey, but um, can you talk about what inspired you to end up in the CIA and how that came to be, please?
7: Sure. Um, yeah, you sip. I'll sip yeah. after my intro story. Uh, you know, I grew up actually in the Silicon Valley of all places. And um, from a very young age, I there was something about growing up in Palo Alto and Los Altos Hills in that area. that There was something about it that just didn't completely mesh with who I was. From a very young age, I had a global perspective, probably in part because my mom is not originally from the U.S., and I always wanted to see what was out there beyond just the little bubble I was living in. So decided very early on that I was going to focus on international affairs um, and see what that led to. So i will fast forward. You know, spent a year of high school overseas, a year of college overseas, and then went to D.C. for grad school. And uh, in 1999, when you graduate with you know, masters in international affairs, back then you didn't think as much of what companies. Can you play this role on stage? You really think about government. Now, this is not the sexy CIA story people want to hear. I really wanted to work at USAID or State Department, but they both had hiring freezes in 1999. Because I was like this, you know, weird lefty curly haired girl from California who just wanted to like go around the world and, and do great things and help, you know, work on foreign policy and figure out what the US's role in the world could be. Um, So those two places had hiring freezes, and someone's like, oh, well, you should just throw your resume in at the CIA. It's like, wow, that sounded scary. But I did, and oddly enough, they called me right away. And this was before September 11th, so I went in. They still interviewed in the building at the time. And I went in, and I interviewed, and then went home that night, and I was like, that was really weird. I was just in the CIA and just went out and partied all night with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) And and they called me at 8 o'clock the next morning when I was not very coherent and ready to be woken up by the phone. And they, they made an offer the next morning for exactly what I said I wanted to do. I said I had spent some time in Africa. It was the part of the world that was most interesting to me. And when I applied, I did not apply to work at the CIA. I applied to work on African affairs and African political issues. And that's what they offered.
0: And... Can you go through that thought process? Because I joined the military in 1998, right? And we thought maybe you go to Bosnia. There was no looming threat of Iraq and Afghanistan. There was no 9-11. So it's not the national security environment that young people are waking up to and, and launching into now. And I went from an elite liberal arts school in Western Massachusetts, Amherst College, which couldn't have been farther away from the army than um, maybe Berkeley and the CIA. So can can you talk about what you were thinking during that time period and the trajectory you thought it might take you on?
7: Sure. Um, I mean, this was a period of time, late 90s, you know, your post-Cold War, your pre-September 11th. It is just kind of this, what is the world going to look like? How is the world going to develop? What is the U.S.'s role going to be in it? And those were all super interesting questions to me and i mean the first time i'd gone to africa it was like throw a guitar on my back go just play music it was actually music and art that drew me to that part of the world to begin with um so it really maybe was a little bit sort of wide-eyed a little bit just excited to really dig in on how the world is going to again it's it was a little bit of a weird time in the 90s it was post cold war post Berlin Wall coming down, not really knowing how the world's going to turn out. It was all very exciting. So I just wanted to play a part in that excitement and in understanding how different cultures can work together and how different people can work together. Um, so that was the thought process.
0: And I'm, there's a lot of elements of your experience that I want to dig into. But two weeks ago, a young 23-year-old army specialist was killed in Kenya. Most people in America don't even realize we have military forces in Kenya. We talk a lot in this show about the forever war and how many different places our military is engaged in on a daily basis that's often forgotten from the headlines. So can you give us your perspective on that uh, and in, specifically the disconnect that exists between what our military and clandestine forces are doing in Kenya specifically and in Africa um, given that everyone is barely focused on Afghanistan or Iraq, much less Kenya.
7: Yeah. um, So I spent two years in Kenya as a foreign service officer. So over my career, I worked for about four or five different government agencies. So I was in Kenya from 2004 to 2006 um, as a diplomat. And of the various roles I played there, uh, one was the political military officer. So that meant that uh, I had to work with the U.S. military there because and if I get into too much detail, just give me like the, pull the ear or something, but.
0: I will definitely not pull your ear. Okay. Um, <laughs> You're one of the few people that could definitely kill me that I've interviewed. Most people I could take out, I think that you have the advantage here. So I'm not pulling on your ear. I
7: meant pull your own ear, but okay, yes. Don't pull I, will tr- uh, I will
0: trust you to, I will trust you, as I told you earlier, I will trust you to censor what you need to. Okay. For reasons of national security.
7: Yeah. So um, what that meant is the U.S. military, listen, Kenya was not a combat zone. So that means that the military is not in charge whereas in Afghanistan and Iraq they are. So you put a civilian like me who has to work with the U.S. military to really figure out everything that how we work with Kenyans and whatnot. So long story short I spent a lot of time up in the coastal part of Kenya in particular spent a lot of time in this little area called Lamu and it's it's sort of the northern tip of the coastal part of Kenya very close to Somalia it shares a border with Somalia And a lot of the work that I was doing in that part of the world was really, I mean, it's not a politically correct term, but a lot of it is the hearts and minds type of work, right? It's building bridges with communities, um, while at the same time, the U.S. military was also helping the Kenyans build up a Coast Guard and was there to help the Kenyans figure out how to secure their own borders. So what happened a few weeks, it was a few weeks ago, I think, um, most people missed it, is that there was... Al-Shabaab, the terrorist group from Somalia, had, this is pretty shocking, infiltrated the military yep. base that U.S. military are sharing with the Kenyans in Lamu. And most people don't necessarily know that that base is there. So the fact that Al-Shabaab was able to even attack that base, to me, was shocking. Um, there were very conflicted reports in the beginning, including us not admitting if it had really been breached. Um To me, what was really important in that moment was to realize that there were a few things that were going on in my mind. One is, wow, Al-Shabaab has actually gained the capability to possibly breach a military base that the U.S. is securing. Um, That's shocking. But two, it's also, I was a little bit concerned about how are we going to react to this? Because at the end of the day, we are there to help the Kenyans secure this part of their country. The Kenyans want us there. The Kenyans are dealing with the threat at their border. For me, I spent so much time with people in these different villages along that border there. And it's always the civilians that are going to suffer if things escalate. It's always those people in those villages who are just happen by geographical... Unluckiness to be sitting right along that border there, and so I. Anyway, I just wanted. I was really nervous. It happened right after the Iran thing, right? It happened yeah. right after yeah, Soleimani that weekend, yeah. And immediately, you see, speaking of what we're going to talk about in, the min, in a minute, the amount of disinformation that starts to spread online. A lot of self-appointed experts start tweeting that this must have something to do with Iran, that al-Shabaab was clearly paying the US back for us killing Soleimani, none of that is true. But that rhetoric starts to build up, and my concern is, does that become a talking point for this administration to take stronger action in Somalia that could really affect these populations? So that whole thing became very messy.
0: So it's kind of all been messy, especially over the last three years. Um, And you've you've right? I mean, you and you've demonstrated courage time and time again. You know your your decision to step up to serve. But maybe um, in in my view, one of the most courageous moments was when you chose to essentially out yourself as a CIA analyst um, through a New York Times op-ed. And I would like you to please share that story. And if you can take us through your thought process. In, in 2004, I came home from Iraq and was one of the first soldiers to publicly criticize the war opposite the president on a public stage. So I remember in a very different way what it was like to make that transition. You go across the Rubicon and once you speak out and and mine was in a political speech opposite the president and then 24 hours later was George Stephanopoulos on ABC and you went through a similar run where you had the New York Times op-ed and then all the the major media sources. killed. So can you take us through those days prior and what led you to that moment and why it was so important for you to speak out?
7: Sure. Um, What's really interesting is I I had never planned to talk about my CIA past publicly. It was never something I was trying to do. It was never something I planned to do. I had reinvented myself as a private citizen, which is harder than people realize when you come out of that world. And I'd managed to do it. And, It really started in late 2015 as I started watching the rhetoric heating up here ahead of the elections and started getting more and more concerned like a lot of people were about this breakdown of civil discourse, what was going on. But it was that moment. So if you recall on inauguration day, so I went to the Women's March that day. It was the first moment in a number of months where I felt inspired and felt a little bit hopeful again. We all dealt with the elections in our own way. For me, I will be very honest, I actually felt betrayed by my country. I felt like this was a country I had served. This was the country I had done so much for. And in that moment, I felt betrayed. So I was very down. And then the Women's March happened, and I felt inspired for the first time in a long time. And I come home. My phone had been off all day. I come home, and there's just like so many messages on my phone. Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? So you may recall Trump made a speech on like day two or day one at the CIA in front of the wall of stars, um, which is the wall that commemorates people who died in service. And many of those stars don't even have names attached to them because they're classified. And it's for for the agency, it's hollowed ground.
0: It's like the CIA's Arlington. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
7: Yeah. And he gave this speech in front of the wall. And it wasn't just that he gave this speech. He had been, for me, I was watching for months how he was denigrating the intelligence community. And whatever you think about the intelligence community, let me be clear, I never planned to be the great defender of the CIA when I left. i, I That was never my goal. But the dangers of a president who intentionally denigrates the intelligence community and the so-called deep state, that is, to me a demonstration of what's to come, and that is right out of a dictator's playbook. So he stood up on that stage in front of the Wallace stars and talked about his numbers at inauguration and went on and on and bragged about it and, and like didn't even thank the men and women that were there, and it infuriated me. So that night I got really, really angry, angry Americans. I was an angry American that night, and I just started writing. And then I had a phone call with one of the reporters that had been at the CIA that day. And, everybody, and he knew my background and he wanted to get a quote for me. And I kind of yelled at him, you shouldn't have even been there. The press should not be at the CIA when the president gives a speech there. I had been there when Vice President Biden had given a speech there. That is the one place you come just to tell the men and women who work there how important their work is because nobody will ever know their names. And so actually the night before my New York Times piece, he asked me what I thought about it. And he said, well, what do you think about this standing ovation that Trump is now bragging about on TV? And I said, well, of course he got a standing ovation. The men and women in the CIA do not sit down in front of their commander-in-chief until told to do so. And I watched it. He never told them to sit. And he said, well, can I quote you on that? And I hadn't said anything publicly yet. And that was the moment where it was, to me, Me protecting my past was less important than being able to really help people understand what was going on. So I said, you can quote me on the record. In his defense, most journalists would be like, awesome, bye, click, (laughs) right? And he asked me, said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, because this is way bigger than me. And then I wrote the piece that night. And in the New York Times the next day, the op-ed came out talking about the star on the wall behind the president that represented my colleague that had died overseas. Which, by the way, that star had been classified It wasn't until I looked it up online that I realized his star had been declassified at that point and I could tell his story. So I felt like honoring his story in that piece as well. But just to quickly sum up the thought process (laughs) that night, for me, I had carried the secret for 17 years, right? I mean, very few people knew this about my past. They probably assumed and they probably guessed, but I didn't say it out loud. For me, the secret was actually... Bigger than it needed to be. Because for me to tell the entire world, especially in the New York Times, about that part of my past was scarier than anything I'd ever done. It was scarier than having guns pointed at me. It was scarier than anything I'd done along, like in scary parts of the world. And you know what? I woke up the next day and I was still alive. And in a way, I unburdened that secret.
0: It's It's an incredibly important story of courage and patriotism. I think it was a time when the president had just started to politicize the intelligence community and the national security apparatus. And now it's become a standard playbook. When he rolled out his statement on Soleimani, he had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Army Chief of Staff flanking him in a way that you don't see in America. You don't see a civilian commander in chief walk out and say, look at my guns, right, which is what he's done. But he's also very shrewdly um, cannibalized that political power. Because he knows that in many ways, you know, troops, veterans, national security folks are the ultimate populist issue. But but you really have spoken yeah you know, effectively about the fear. But can you talk about maybe that 24, 48 hours afterward where you have this kind of it's got to be an out of body experience? Um, you know, I had Mayor Pete Buttigieg on the show a couple weeks ago and I asked him, you know, you were relatively unknown eight months ago. Now you're world famous. But you were a, a, a covert asset for the CIA and then you're sitting on CNN, What is that 24 hours like for you and calls from your family or people from college saying, holy shit, you're in the CIA? Like what 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 is that like for for you as a human being?
7: I feel like I need to start by saying I was not a covert asset just thank before the before the agency gets mad at me. But. Thank you for
0: the clarification.
7: I appreciate that. Um but it's actually funny, I was supposed to have dinner with a few friends that night and I emailed them. I was in my pajamas under a blanket, on my couch. That was actually how I spent that day. And I I decided day one, don't look at social, don't, just don't. Don't look at social media, don't read the emails. And then I said to them, can we have dinner as close to my house as possible tonight? Because something's gonna drop at 3 p.m. and I don't know how I'm gonna feel by dinnertime. And I'm like, okay. So we went to dinner and by that point it had hit and uh, I didn't pay attention the first day. And when the second round of drinks were ordered, And I was like, well, it's not like I'll go on CNN tomorrow, so bring it on. Because I just did not want to be a news person. I didn't want to be the story. So we drank way too much that night. And then at 5 a.m., the emails from every major network start coming in. And I said, no, I didn't want to do it. And friends of mine who are still in government are the ones who convinced me to go on CNN the next day. Because they said, you're speaking for people who can't speak right now. And so they, in a way, put that weight on me. But um, that if you ever see that CNN interview, you can tell how uncomfortable I am in it. And it's not that I'm uncomfortable with speaking. I'm uncomfortable with ever feeling like I'm exploiting any part of my past for anything that looks like self-promotion. But to me, it was so important to help Americans understand We all are so bombarded with so much information right now. To me, I really wanted to help people understand when you have a president that is intentionally degrading the very people that whether you like them or not and however you feel about the intel community or the military, at the end of the day, they're still the ones that are gonna keep you safe when the shit hits the fan. So I was going through all that. And then there's the funny moments where I finally resurfaced and get online and like ex-boyfriends are like, oh, hey, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, sorry. Forgot to mention that part. <laughs> so like it got weird. It got weird after that.
0: Yes. This is going to make a great movie one day. Um, but t- take us. Um, I, I want to stay on a moment that you shared that I think is important for people to understand. The, um, the 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 national intelligence community can often seem like this monolith. But part of your motivation was sharing the story of your colleague that was represented on the wall by the star. Can you share that story? Tell us who that colleague was and why it was important that he be memorialized with a star on that wall?
7: Sure. Um, You're going to see me going through what is public and what is not in my brain right now. Um, This was a colleague that I had met while I was in Ethiopia. Um, And he was killed in Ethiopia. And what I remember, in addition to, and I I think I wrote about this in the piece, when I worked with him in Ethiopia a little bit, not worked with him, but when I met him, when I was there traveling for work, he and I never, I don't know if he was a Republican or a Democrat. I don't know if he was conservative or liberal. I don't know about any of his political leanings. I know that he was absolutely dedicated to his work, to national security of our country. And he was just a really freaking cool guy. His name is Greg Wenzel. And I just remember when we had the memorial service for him at the agency, and his name wasn't public. There's a star, and it just says anonymous, because he hadn't been declassified yet. And I remember watching his parents at the memorial service. And I remember thinking, these parents just lost a son who, by the way, the important thing to know about him, he was... He was a law student, I think he was a lawyer. He could have gone off and made a lot of money as a lawyer and decided that this was what he wanted to do instead. And I watched his parents knowing he's classified, you're never gonna be able to tell anybody why he really died. You won't even be able to tell anybody he died in Ethiopia. That was really heartbreaking. so he is just to me one of those people who in addition to just I mean he's a smart ass we just like we joked we had fun we he's one of those guys that if he was sitting up here you would all want to have a drink with him but you would know nothing about him. So to me it was also really important to just make make it human, make people understand that that star is a human being that you might have actually really liked. And he's being denigrated right now because of the president standing in front of his star, lying about the numbers of people who showed up at his inauguration. And even just to point out, he he pointed at everybody in the CIA that day and said, how many of you voted for me?
0: Right.
7: Right. Let that sink in. The president pointed at the men and women in the CIA and said, who here voted for me?
0: So I think there are a lot of folks inside the CIA, whether they can be open about it or not, who are frustrated, to say the least, probably angry about the state of affairs and about leadership. But this is a question I ask of of all of our guests. So, yeah, Eisenstadt, what makes you angry?
7: Well, that could take the rest of the podcast. Um, so I'll just narrow it down to two things. One, because I told you this back there. What will make me angry is if I have something in my teeth and my friends don't tell me like that will end our friendship. Just it's very clear. If there's spinach in my teeth and you do not tell me because we did a teeth check before I came out. Um, And two, there's so many things, but to me, one of the things is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy really pisses me off. Um, If you and I have different viewpoints on things, if we have different political ideas, if we have different perspectives, I'm fine with all of that. But if you're hypocritical about it, that infuriates me.
0: Uh, under, understandably. I don't think you're a person that anyone wants to piss off. And, and now you're um, in this new role where you are a voice for the voiceless. You're an advocate. You're an educator. But again, going back to your roots, you grew up in Northern California. Another question I ask of, of all of our guests, Yal, what was your first car?
7: So my first car was supposed to be this weird little peach-colored Datsun. We called the peachy car. Um, but my babysitter crashed it right before my 16th birthday. And I was going to get, like, the clunker peachy car Datsun. So my first car ended up being a nicer <laughs> Honda Civic, which then, a year later, a woman ran a stop sign And it got crashed and totaled and broke my femur. Like It was terrible. Almost died. (laughs) But so that's two cars in a row.
0: What what color was that second car?
7: Uh, The second car was a gray Honda Civic. Yeah.
0: There's never a boring answer to that question. So those of you that are new to this podcast, like, why is he asking about a freaking car? There's almost always an interesting story. And that's a new one.
3: It
7: changed the whole trajectory of my life, too. It did? I was 17. I had different ideas of what I wanted to do with my life. I'm going to keep that one, though, a little bit internal right now. But the broken femur, the metal rod down my leg, there were reasons why I couldn't do what I actually wanted to do. So I ended up at the CIA instead.
0: And yeah. later, you end up at Facebook. Yes. Um, which is an interesting you know, transition from, from public service and the, the national intelligence industry. Um, you also were very vocal in, in the way you departed Facebook. Can you explain for folks who maybe knew to your experience what you were hired to do or what you thought you were going to do and why you left?
7: Sure. So <laughs> I, I left government in 2013, and my biggest goal was to figure out who the biggest, baddest corporation in the world, who was having profound impacts on the world was, and help them think through how to work with local communities better, particularly in Africa. In 2013, that wasn't Facebook yet. It, it, oddly enough, was ExxonMobil, which is where I ended up for two years, heading their corporate social responsibility strategy. But then in 2015, 2016, I started writing about the breakdown in civil discourse. Um, actually wrote this piece exploring why was it easier for me to engage with suspected extremists and terrorists along the Somalia border than it is for me to talk to Americans now on the opposite side of a political issue. And if that's happening to me, what does that mean for the future of our democracy? So I, I wrote that in Time magazine. Start really digging in on what's going on. Like, what is exacerbating this polarization that's always existed here? And so, of course, it takes me to starting to look at social media. So just as I'm getting asked to keynote big tech conferences to talk about this, Facebook calls. Um And long story short, we went through a long process um, because I am not taking a job because I want the free kombucha if I'm taking this job. It's because I think you are a fundamental threat to our democracy right now. Although I also love certain things about Facebook. I love how you have allowed me to stay connected to my friends around the world. If you are offering me the opportunity to come in and really help diagnose this problem and try to help fix it, then great. So they offered me a very shiny title um, that spoke to... It's almost like they purposely spoke to the core of the type of person I am. And they offered me this title of Head of Global Elections Integrity Operations. Uh, Which
0: might, might appear to be an oxymoron in and of itself to most people.
7: <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and to be clear... The other thing they didn't really explain very well during the interview process is that's within business integrity, which is a part of Facebook that is really responsible for everything they monetize, which means political ads. Um, They made the offer, the final offer, one minute after Zuckerberg's hearing ended on the Hill. If we all remember that fun Senate hearing. Um, I pushed back with all my, don't hire me if you don't mean it. This is who I am. Don't make this offer if you don't want me to come in and do this job. Uh, So I was very clear. And I went in with the best intentions of I still love the idea of a platform like Facebook. And yes, I want to help this company figure out how to not destroy democracy. Uh, But I was just never empowered to do anything. So I mean, on day two, they took my title away. They told me I was not gonna have because they told me I'd get to hire my own team. They told me that it was up to me how many people that... Like, they gave, they made every promise that I asked for and then took that all away on day two. Now, just to be really clear, I want to be really clear on this. I can only speak to my experience, and my experience was in the Business Integrity Org. Had I been hired into a different part of Facebook, I don't know. Maybe it would have been different. But unfortunately, that was my situation. So a few months later... Um, and But I did, so I also immediately knew... <laughs> okay, well, then I better learn as much as I can while I'm still here. <laughs> um, listen, you don't hire a former CIA officer and then tell me not to look under the rugs. Like, that's just, that's your own fault. That's, right. that's just kind of stupid to think that's not how I'm going to operate. Um, to me, it was really important to learn how did we get here in order to fix it. And I really felt like nobody wanted me to talk about how did we get here. And that's what it's analyst would do. They would analyze how did we get here in order to fix it, right? Um, so to be clear, there were lots of employees there who were super excited I was there, who were thirsty for someone to help them think differently through it. Um, the layers above me were not. And so I told them a few months later, you hired me to do this. I'm not empowered to do this. Either you find me somewhere within this company to do the work you hired me to do, or I'm out. And they did not find me that place to do that. And so a few months later, I mean, the, the irony, I've never said this out loud. I don't know if I quit or if I was fired <laughs> because I laid down the marker of I give you two months to figure out how to empower me or I'm out. And they did not. So there you go.
0: That's like most members of Trump's cabinet that have left. They don't know if they've been fired or they quit either. But at, it, at, at its Corel who has more information about the average American, the CIA or Facebook?
7: I mean, obviously Facebook, because we give it up voluntarily. So I think one thing people don't understand about the CIA, as much as you think that the deep state and the almighty are tracking your every move, the CIA really doesn't give a shit about most of you in this room. Don't take that in a negative way. They just don't. Like, the CIA is actually looking at foreign information and foreign threats and whatnot. The FBI is a different story. But um, the CIA doesn't care about any of you unless you are somehow connected to a foreign terrorist organization that's plotting here. Facebook, you guys give it all up. Like you, they they, they know way more about you, but that's kind of our own faults too.
0: So yeah, you created a, um, a, a paper recently with John and um, a number of other technology leaders here at BetterWorks on um, kind of what you'd like to see Facebook change to help democracy. I'm paraphrasing, you, you can maybe help me on that. But for, especially folks who aren't as close to it, who aren't deeply entrenched in the technology community. Can you be an an analyst for us? Identify the problem and recommend your solution for the best interest of our democracy.
7: Sure. So there's two things. The the paper we did together with John and Chris Hughes and a number of people, um, it was the immediate things the company can do ahead of our 2020 elections. I'm going to back up before I get to that one and say... Short of all the things I'd actually like to see done, so there's the pragmatist of here is what you can do and here are some things that should not be terribly difficult for Facebook to debate to get done. But on a higher level before we get to that is government has to step up. We have a platform that basically, for me, it's always been about the business model. You have a company, and and I don't want to make it just about Facebook, there are other companies that do this, but that is where I work, so that is what my first-hand experience is from. You have a company that uses our human behavioral data, which we hand over, but it's still not totally transparent about how much they track us all over the internet, but they're using our human behavioral data to categorize us and to segment us into different categories. Why? So that they can like, set us up to be targeted with these personal ads that make us all feel a little better because, oh, they made my life so much easier. They're sending me the ads I want to see. They're showing me the content I want to see. Personalization, customization, that sounds great. It's just so much easier. But with that human behavioral data, we're not, like, they are literally able to take that same data, which might work if they're sending you a Nike ad instead of a... I don't whatever other ad because, hey, I actually like Nike more. Great. That's fine. I really don't care about that. But those same tools are being used by people like politicians and like people who want to actually divide us for their own geopolitical purposes, such as the Russians. They get those same exact tools that Nike's getting. And the danger there is that let's back up a step. Polarization, anger, mistrust, political rhetoric. That's always been a part of the american landscape right i'm not none of that's new and the media has always been hyper divisive and and all of that but these tools that allow them to segment us into these different categories and then target us with ads and and don't forget in order to do that they have to keep you on their screen as long as humanly possible so what does that mean that means their algorithms end up optimizing for keeping you engaged. And you are more likely to remain engaged if the next thing you see is a little more salacious than the last thing you saw. So it's, I'm not going to get into the whole filter bubble conversation. Hopefully most of you have already are well familiar with that. But why is the filter bubble thing so dangerous? Because not only is it breaking down our ability to recognize that people who do not necessarily fit our perception of what is right in the world are not necessarily evil. It pushes us further and further into these extreme mindsets. And they're doing it all to keep you engaged so that they can sell us ads. And why does that matter for elections and what we're talking about now? Is because then politicians can come in and they can hyper-target us with their ads The two of you, I'm just pointing at two people, might both live in New York, might even live across the street from each other. And it is very possible you are shown two totally different versions of a political ad from the same politician. So how can the two of you then have a conversation about what you just saw and debate how you feel about it? You can't because you're not even seeing the same version of truth. And so those are the tools that are super dangerous to me. And those are the things that I would like to see regulated and we can talk about, or I can, I've written about that. But so, separate from the government actually getting their act together and and they're trying, but this is, I get it, it's complicated. They're not gonna get it figured out in time for our election. So that's where John and Chris pulled together this very interesting group of people who all have really inside knowledge of how these things work to say, here are some things we can do short of regulating you, that you as a platform can choose to stand up and do to protect our elections.
0: Mm. It's it's kind of a 10-point plan. And for folks listening on the podcast, we'll post it at angryamericans.us and you can read up and share and advocate for the change that I think is common sense. But yeah, there's been kind of a through line throughout your career. And it's that you're a guardian for America, really. At a time when we need... More guardians. I've, I've spoken at times, a friend of mine um, who was both in the clergy and in the military said once that if America were a religion, the military would be like the clergy. We're the ones that are supposed to uphold the values, be the samurai, the keepers of the flame, right, to protect uh, the country beyond the political influences. But it's this time where people like you, or you in particular, you've stepped up in the CIA, you've stepped up again, you keep stepping up, but you've also redefined patriotism, and I think that's important right now, given the way this president has co-opted it and manipulated it. So can you just share for, for a second your thoughts on what patriotism means in this moment? And especially given your background, because a lot of folks we're in New York City. Um, sometime the quote unquote coastal elite. or so the technology community can feel very far away from national security and defense. And and there's this constant friction that I've seen working in in the Valley and working in other places where um, folks just don't know how to reconcile their issues with the president or with the policy and their national security imperative on some level. So can you share with us your thoughts on what does patriotism mean for you right now?
7: Yeah, that's a big question. Um, It's interesting. Growing up, I never identified with the word patriotism. Even when I served, I didn't identify with the word. Because to me, the word always meant pin wearing, flag waving, bravado, all these things that I didn't identify with. It had had been co-opted by a certain part of our society as this thing that just didn't feel like it was me. So fast forward to today, the reason I decided to stand up and write that piece about Trump and more recently, listen, going up against Mark Zuckerberg is not necessarily easier than going up against Trump. These are powerful people and Zuckerberg probably knows more about me than Trump does if he wants to, right? But to me, it was actually both our current president and unfortunately, oddly enough, some of the things that we are seeing happening in the social media world, to me, are both actual threats to the core of who we are supposed to be as Americans. This idea of dividing us for profit, dividing us into echo chambers, making us hate our neighbors, as opposed to realizing, I don't need to agree with you, but at least we can recognize we have a common shared interest in making our country better. That's that's falling apart. And it's falling apart because companies are profiting off of that divisiveness. So to me, I actually feel more patriotic now than I did when I was serving in government. Because I actually, listen, I don't gain a lot by standing up and shouting these things. Actually, this this woman, I, I, I don't normally do this, but I really recommend reading this piece. And it sounds self-serving because I'm in the piece. But this woman, Rachel Sklar, wrote a piece recently in the Washington Post about the Cassandras. And it was about the women who have been really trying to highlight some of these problems for the last decade. And people weren't listening to it. And I thought about, and and I'm in it, and I thought about it, and I never thought about myself as the Cassandra, and you can look up your mythology if you don't know what the Cassandra is, but that is the patriotic thing, right? It is, I truly believe if we get to the point where we are so divided that we don't actually think we will ever solve some of our problems, then the great American experiment is over because that's all we have is this idea that the next generation will always have more than the previous generation, Right. If we don't even believe that we can figure out how to come together and have those conversations with people anymore, then what are we fighting for anymore? So to me, it's my, writing the piece about Facebook that I wrote last month um, in the Washington Post and standing up against Trump in the New York Times, those to me felt like, listen, it's not fun. I get a lot of hate. You get the alt-right after you. You get the anti-Semites after you. Like it happens. This was no gain to me. But I felt like I had to do it.
0: And you've inspired, I think, more folks than you'll know, especially young people who are considering a way to serve and finding alternative ways to serve. It's interesting to say that you thought about other ways to serve because I was kind of down to AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, Marine Corps. It was actually the ones that I was looking at and trying to figure out a way to serve. But I think you still bring an optimism and you still... Um, bring positivity to this discussion and that's part of your teaching. So my, my final question for you, Yale, is what makes you happy?
7: First of all, the fact that you say I bring in optimism. Uh, I'll give two answers to that because it's funny, a friend at a dinner that she hosted once recently introduced me at the table as the most optimistic person she knows. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'm the one who's always screaming about the house being on fire and how everything's like falling apart. How can you call me optimistic? And she said, because you wouldn't keep fighting if you didn't think there was anything to fight for. So just, that made me happy. You also, saying I'm optimistic because I still don't think of myself that way. Um, Another thing that makes me happy, super random, is um, there's this place in New York City, and I actually went there last night with a friend. There's this place in New York City called Marie's Crisis. And you might think this is funny, and where am I going with this? It is this Broadway musical, piano bar, in the village, rather iconic. I love going there because I'm a nerd and I love singing Broadway tunes. (laughs) There's a little confession. But more importantly, Marie's crisis, I went there on a few of my darkest moments uh, in the last several years. There was one night in particular, I think it might've been the night that Comey had just been fired. Or it was something that for those of us in the national security world, like I know a lot of people freaked out about it, but for those of us from that world, it was really a dramatic moment. And I walk into Marie's Crisis and I sit there with my cocktail at the bar and I'm just pissed and I'm angry. And I'm watching a bar full of people from all walks of life, old, young, like super fashionable, not beautiful, not fat, skinny, everything. And they're all just singing and they are so freaking happy and they're doing what they love. And there's something about that place that reminds me that this is... Why I'm fighting, because these people are so freaking happy singing Broadway tunes. I know that was a weird answer, but Marie's Crisis makes me really happy.
0: It's not. I I think especially folks who've been overseas in harm's way, you need those things back home to remember and to inspire you and to ground you. And when the shit gets really real over there, you hope that they're back there singing Broadway tunes. Yeah. You do. it's it's, it's, It's the... It's a really weird situation, especially because it's so interconnected through technology. You can go out on a combat patrol and then FaceTime your kids afterward. That is a total mindfuck. That is very different for this generation and something previous generations didn't have to deal with. But... I think that your um, connection to those moments are really important, and especially the way you've put a human face on this world of the intelligence community that is being, I think, diminished and disrespected in a way that is so dangerous, not just for the individuals, but for our country and for the future. So you've been immeasurably courageous. Um, and the last thing I will do as a part of every show, and then we're going to come out to the audience and take your questions, so please get them ready. Thank you for bearing with us. But uh, we do a giving of the gifts. And in in recognition um, of your leadership and your courage, you've kind of been a guardian at the gates in many ways. So every show, if you guys are new, I'm going to fill you in. We give three kinds of gifts. So the first we have for Yale is um, some Angry Americans merchandise, which is made in the USA by veterans of Oscar Mike. And if you're feeling particularly angry, you can wear that out or wear it to a party at Zuckerberg's house or something. Um,
7: I don't get invited to these private dinners he's doing.
0: You might now, or you might not. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk to some folks in this room. And the second part, so the show started back in Easter, and we've asked this of every single guest, and this is kind of something a CIA uh, analyst might might be interesting uh, to ask in particular. So there are three colors of Peeps, your marshmallow favorites from Easter. Yellow, blue, and pink. Yel, which color do you choose and why?
7: So I'm going to have to go with yellow, but not just because I believe that was the original Peep color. Um, also growing up, I was such a tomboy and my entire room was pink and it really pissed me off (laughs) that girls had to be pink and boys had to be blue. So that's why I'd go with the yellow.
0: That's a great answer. There there are no bad answers. Sarah Jessica Parker called them the OG of peeps. And so you're in, you're in good standing. And then lastly, so, uh, we talk a bit about whiskey on the show and each show, uh, I go to a liquor store and try to find something that speaks to me about the individual that we will be having a conversation with. So if you don't mind opening that, I can hold your mic for you, but there's a, a bit of a story behind it. And next time you go out and sing show tunes or if Comey gets fired again, you probably, you probably you probably can,
7: that, yeah. Ooh, it's pretty.
0: So it's called uh, heaven's door and it's a, it's a creation of Bob Dylan uh-huh. and maybe not know this, but I've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan in, in the past and, Uh, Bob Dylan famously wrote Watchtower. Everybody knows that Hendrix performed Watchtower, but Bob Dylan wrote it. And I think in these times that feel ominous and at times folks feel hopeless, there are are guardians along the Watchtower. And I think you've been a guardian for America's Watchtower for many years, and most times you could never admit it, even to people close to you. And to hold that is, is in my view, selfless service and leadership and integrity uh, and patriotism that we need now more than ever. So we are very, very grateful for your leadership and for your courage (laughs) and for what you're going to do in the future because you're just getting started. So ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for the great Yale Eisenstein. Yeah, outside the walls, Things can get crazy, but there's always a way to make an impact. And it's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper.
4: Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every pod, I offer a way of
0: converting your righteous and understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that'll channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes. Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And this past weekend, we recognized and celebrated a man who was a true North Star for America. Even in the times when America lost its way. A man who was an angry American for all the right reasons.
3: This is the most important and crucial period of your lives for what you do now and what you decide now at this age may well determine which way your life shall go. And the question is whether you have a proper, a solid, and a sound blueprint. And I want to suggest some of the things that should be in your life's blueprint. Number one in your life's blueprint should be a deep belief in your own dignity, your own worth and your own somebodyness. Don't allow anybody to make you feel that you are nobody. Always feel that you count. Always feel that you have worth and always feel that your life has ultimate significance. Secondly, In your life's blueprint you must have as a basic principle the determination to achieve excellence in your various fields of endeavor you're going to be deciding as the days and the years unfold what you will do in life what your life's work will be once you discover what it will be set out to do it and to do it well be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. For is isn't by size that you win or you fail? Be the best of whatever you are.
0: That's rarely seen footage of Martin Luther King Jr. speaking to students at Barat Jr. High in Philadelphia on October 26, 1967. It's hard to pull a single clip from Martin Luther King, but at this moment, in this episode, it's a fitting message. Every life has ultimate significance. Every star in the sky, every star on the wall, the ones that you know and the ones that you can't. Your life has ultimate significance. It does. That's what our conversation with the IL reveals and what this moment in American history requires, not just of CIA officers, but all of us. You can make an impact in ways big and small. Yale spoke powerfully about her friend who was represented on the wall at the CIA. He was the eighty-first star carved into the memorial wall at the CIA headquarters lobby. And his name was Greg Wenzel. And Yale powerfully wrote about him in her courageous New York Times op ed. She said, I don't know if he was a liberal or a conservative. I don't know whom he voted for. I know only that he was dedicated loyal, adventurous, and a jokester. He welcomed me as a sister when we met overseas, knowing nothing more than that I was a colleague and shared a sense of mission. Greg Wenzel was a member of the CIA's first clandestine service training class to graduate after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. He was known as a character, smart and hysterical, who always had a smile on his face. He was warm and believed in random gifts of kindness. Just two years after joining the agency, Greg was killed in 2003 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. He was just 33 years old. Greg was born in the Bronx in New York City. He graduated with honors from Monroe Woodbury High School in Central Valley, New York. He went to the State University of New York at Binghamton, and he studied abroad in Tel Aviv. During the summers, he was a lifeguard and a waiter. And he graduated with a BA in history and continued his education at Miami University in Florida, where he got a law degree. Then he became a defense attorney in Miami and had a really heavy caseload, more than 100 cases, and arguing twice before the state Supreme Court. He also taught law at the Miami-Dade Community College Police Academy. He had a wicked sense of humor, and his colleagues said that before going into court, he'd sometimes be heard belting out the theme from Star Wars. Greg was a bear of a man who enjoyed swimming, biking, running, photography, and playing Bob Dylan tunes on his harmonica, or the kazoo. He trained for marathons and triathlons with his dad, and completed three Ironmans. Whether it was a tough legal question or a swim around Key West, Greg loved a challenge. It's a great story that people tell about him. He was once asked by a friend to secretly take candid photos of that friend and the friend's girlfriend as a part of an elaborate engagement plan. Greg agreed. The friend, after proposing to his girlfriend, who accepted, looked around, but saw no sign of Greg for hundreds of yards. He was bummed that Greg wasn't able to come but he understood it was a lot to ask of his friend. Just as the couple was leaving the beach, Greg showed up out of nowhere with a huge smile on his face. And what he did, recalled his friend, was unbelievable. During the entire pre- and post-proposal, which lasted about an hour, Greg had positioned himself in various places all around the beach, using every means possible to go undetected. He took photographs hiding on top of a lifeguard stand, partially burying himself in the sand, and hiding behind other beach stuff like stacked lounge chairs. They had no idea he was even there. He was able to silently and covertly take some of the most cherished photos that they own. Greg was a guy who made a difference in people's lives. He was always involved in the communities he served, and he was posthumously awarded the agency's Intelligence Commendation Medal, an exceptional service medallion. He survived by his parents and three sisters. He received a star on the CIA wall. It wasn't until 2009 that his name could be unveiled in the Book of Honor. In a letter to Greg's family after the wall ceremony, President Obama wrote, his brave sacrifice exceeded all measures of selflessness and devotion to his country. We honor him not only as a guardian of our liberty, but as a true embodiment of America's spirit of service to a cause greater than ourselves. Our nation will not forget his sacrifice. The CIA Foundation was built to care for the stars on the wall like Greg and for the families they leave behind. The CIA Officers Memorial Foundation has a unique mission supported by the CIA community for decades. You can go to Foundation.org or go to angryamericans.us and we'll have a link. But it's ciamemorialfoundation.org. The Foundation provides educational support and emergency financial assistance to the families of CIA officers who die while on active duty or while severely wounded or disabled in a war zone. They support families of CIA officers by relieving financial stress, encouraging educational and career goals, and emotionally reconnecting the families with the great agency their loved ones serve with distinction. They raise awareness and enlist support for the needs of families of deceased officers. They have a four-star rating by Charity Navigator, and to date, the foundation has provided support and awarded scholarship to 132 dependents of deceased CIA officers. For the 2019 academic year, the foundation has granted over $1 million to 49 students. What began as a response from the hearts of the American people to the family of CIA officer Michael Spann has grown into an organization that's a resource to the men and women of the CIA who voluntarily place themselves in harm's way around the globe. The Foundation serves a promise to the CIA officers and their families that they will receive support if a tragedy happens. Unfortunately, the requirements for future support for the family of officers who have died in the line of duty continue to grow. Currently, there are 124 children and widows who will be eligible for support over the next 15 years. And the Foundation continues to seek donations from anybody who can help. Step up and do what you can. CIAMemorialFoundation.org and you can find them on social media help the stars like Greg Wenzel and Mike Spann, and so many others whose names we'll never know. They stand guard. Right now, as you listen to this podcast, many women like Greg and Mike and Yael stand guard in the watchtower for us all. They're the stars that guide us, and the stars that light our way, and the stars that look down on all of us from overhead, in good times, and especially in bad. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag Angry Americans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. All right, we've been on a roll to start 2020. We're like the 49ers of podcasting or the Kansas City Chiefs of content. And I got some big updates to share and some big thank yous to give. I told you 2020 is going to be a big year of live events for Angry Americans and for Righteous Media. So first off, thank you to everyone who came out to the live event with the IL. Thank you especially to the awesome team at Betaworks, especially John Borthwick. He's the CEO and founder. He's a visionary, a leader and a great patriot does great work over there at Betaworks, and I'm very grateful to John and his team for their support. That includes Ben Scheim and Kit Irwin and everybody who made that event happen. Thank you to all of you. And as I mentioned, we've got more big events coming, including some very big ones, and that starts January 27th next week in New York with Ambassador Susan Rice. It's going to be inside the Manhattan Classic Car Club. If you've heard this show, you know what that's all about. You want to be inside. All these events are small, intimate, and really cool. So if you want tickets, go to angryamericans.us backslash events and tickets are still available now for our next event, January 27th in New York with Ambassador Susan Rice. After that, as I mentioned earlier, Megan McCain from The View is going to be joining me February 4th, also at the Classic Car Club Manhattan. You definitely want to come check out the car club. You definitely want to hear what Megan has to say. She's in the news daily and making some serious noise. She's an incredible patriot, and she cares deeply about our national security, about our veterans, and about so many issues. So come on out. See me. See Megan. See lots of other angry Americans at one of the coolest venues in America inside the Classic Car Club, February 4th in New York. Again, that's angryamericans.us backslash events. And a reminder, February 8th, FDNY Hockey. The Firefighters of New York hockey team is battling the Chicago Cops. FDNY versus Chicago PD in Staten Island, New York, February 8th. Tickets are only five bucks. You can walk up, bring your kids. It'll be a great time. I'm going to drop the puck. Uh, Again, angryamericans.us backslash events. And as I mentioned last week, if you want to come see me in Los Angeles with the great Henry Rollins, it's going to happen February 14th on Valentine's Day, lunch with me, Henry Rollins, and you in Hollywood. It's going to be a really cool venue. Tickets are available now and are going to go fast. So go to angryamericans.us backslash events. If you don't live in either one of these places, post it on social media. Spread the word. We're going to come to other cities and towns, but this is where we're starting out. Tickets are limited and will sell out. So go get them and spread the word. Also, just a quick heads up, I will be again hosting for Chris Cuomo on the radio on SiriusXM channel 124 on Wednesday, January 29th, and Thursday, January 30th That's SiriusXM channel 124. You can get a free subscription if you go to their website. You can follow us on social media, and if you're a SiriusXM listener, definitely check us out and give me a call. We're going to do two full hours, uh, and I'll be taking your calls. And big thanks to a few folks that made this episode happen. Again, thanks to Yael Eisenstadt. She is an amazing leader, and I'm so grateful that she shared her story, uh, a courageous, inspiring story, and that she sat down with me and the team uh, and and made this this show happen. Thanks again to the folks at Betaworks. Thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich, Radical Roy Velchek, and Creative Chris Rosenthal, the whole outstanding team at Righteous Media. They power the show and all the platforms, social media, and content around it. And Bill Schultz, who is always a guardian for all of us, mastering and guarding all of our audio wizardry. Thank you, my friend, for making this show happen. Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Go check out all their new designs at angryamericans.us now. And Rick Sorkin, my friend, a great musician, artist, creative, and podcaster who's been helping us put together the L.A. event. I want to thank him. Go check out his podcast. He has a great podcast called Everybody and Their Mother Has a Podcast. Everybody's got a podcast, right? Well, so does Rick with his mother. So it's Rick and his mom, Sharon Koppelman. They have a weekly show where they talk about current events, life, and whatever else they want. It's charming. It's insightful. It's heartfelt. It's really awesome. So check out. Everybody and their mother has a podcast. Also, big thanks to Chris Cuomo for, again, giving me a shot on XM and for having me on TV. Thanks to Vicky, Christine, and Tom over at Sirius. A couple other thank yous. I want to thank Eli Manning. If you haven't heard, he's retiring. And I want to thank him, really, for two Super Bowls, for beating the Patriots, but for being a role model and still being himself. Eli Manning's jersey is on the wall of my son's room. It's not just because he's a great player, because he was a great dude. He was always involved in the community and always a role model. And I'm glad he's going out without significant injury. Eli, wishing you all the best, man. And my thanks to Bob Dylan. I've never met Bob Dylan. I would be humbled to beat Bob Dylan. But I want to thank him for being the most amazing songwriter we've ever known, and also for being an activist, an icon, a patriot, and an inspiration. And of course, I would be humbled and grateful if he joined us on this show at some point in the future. Bob Dylan is the best kind of Angry American. And it's time for thank a listener. So I want to thank a few of you for being awesome Angry Americans and for listening. I'll make you famous. I haven't played them in a while, but you can still leave us a voicemail, eight three 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 33 angry That's eight three 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 33 angry You can leave us a voicemail, let us know what's got you angry, and maybe we will use it in a future show, and we might make you famous.
3: Seriously, do it.
0: Do it. Do it. And my thanks to a few of you who are holding the door, who are standing the watch, who are supporting this community in ways big and small. First off, I want to thank Caterbug who is from Parts Unknown. If you don't have an address on your social media, I'm going to call you Parts Unknown. But Caterbug, Caterbug1215, who tweeted, Paul Rykoff, Angry Americans, makes me feel a little more angry and a little more hopeful with every episode. I laugh, cry, yell, and then I email, donate, and keep pushing forward. I appreciate that, Caterbug. I'm glad we can be there to motivate you. Thank you for motivating me, and thank you for spreading the word. Thanks also to Mark, our friend Sonoma Badger, who continues to be a great supporter of this show. He tweeted, Another excellent podcast of Angry Americans with Paul Rykoff featuring Errol Lewis. Love the merchandise from Oscar Mike, but we need a long-sleeve tee. And he told me he donated to Taps.org. And thank me for the recommendation. I want to thank Mark for the support. Thank you for the recommendation on new merch. And thank you for donating to TAPS. Thank you to all of you who donated to TAPS in honor of my birthday. TAPS is a sister organization of the CIA Officers Fund. They work together closely. They're both fantastic organizations. Both are highly recommended. But my thanks to you, Sonoma Badger. Thank you, Mark, for all your support. And finally, thanks to Link Stallings, who is in Hiawassee, Georgia, He is an adventure athlete, he is a dog father, he's a business owner, he's a podcaster, and he's an organizer. Uh, And he tweeted at me, Much respect to you, sir. Started listening in September and have been trying to catch up. Caught Mayor Pete interview last, but his favorites are McGrath, Nance the Man, Dean Kamen, so inspiring, Nadelman, and Tulsi. He said, Your pod gets better and better. Keep it up love me some angry americans thank you link really appreciate it man and if you haven't heard those episodes go back and check them out dean Kamen, the inventor the guy who created the Segway, is particularly inspiring i love that one uh, ethan nadelman the godfather of drugs malcolm nance the master of all things national defense amy mcgrath who's running against mitch mcconnell in kentucky and tulsi gabbard that i mentioned earlier but thank you to link i saw that you're from hiawassee georgia which is a gorgeous part of the country. I know where you are, man. I've been through there. And I looked it up. As of the census in 2010, there are 880 people living in Hiawassee. It's right on the Appalachian Trail. It's an awesome spot for swimming, boating, sport fishing, uh, and really good trout fishing so maybe we can get rachel maddow or chris Cuomo or some of the other people who fish to come with me and make a visit down there to hiawassee but i want to thank you link for for joining us man for being a part of this community and thanks for spreading the word thank you all no matter where you are and please keep that feedback coming please use the hashtag angry americans and sound off i am grateful to all of you thank you
1: Thank you. That's all That's all that I can think to say right now is thank you, and I'll spend the rest of my life trying to thank you for this and for how fun you've made my life.
0: That's not me. That's Taylor Swift. But that's how I feel. And I hope to see you on tour, either in New York or in Los Angeles or other tours that are coming up. And speaking of tour, as always, thanks to my amazing wife and to my two boys, last week we went to the train show. There's an amazing train show at the Botanical Gardens in the Bronx that blew my son's mind. And then... We went to Benihana, my kids' first time ever at Benihana. The four-year-old was over the moon. The baby was both fascinated and horrified, but it was a very special day, and I highly recommend the Benihana experience for your kids if you can. It's not cheap, but it's definitely worth it. And finally, a special tour is coming our way this weekend that has me and my boys particularly excited. Yep monster jam is coming and we're going and it's awesome and to quote biggie smalls if you don't know now you know so my thanks to my family as always and my thanks to you dear listener for tuning in please keep this 2020 momentum rolling this pod continues to grow we continue to get momentum the audience continues to grow so do me a solid check out those events that we have coming soon and share this podcast with five friends just do me a solid five friends it's all it takes five the magic five And if you're on an Apple device, you can leave the show a quick review. I know many of you are listening and you still haven't done it. So please leave a review. Subscribe now and you'll have it hot and fresh waiting for you on Thursday mornings. We shoot for as early as possible. We shoot for 3.01 Eastern Time. But if it's not there, check us on social media and we'll let you know when it's coming. But it should be there in time for your Thursday commute. And go back and check out all the archives. They're all there. They're all free. And keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. As always, go to angryamericans.us. You can sign up for our newsletter and you will find out about upcoming events that I will be announcing soon, uh, new merchandise coming, and lots of good stuff in the new year. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we will keep this movement growing week by week by week, no matter what happens on the outside.
4: There must be some way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. And
0: remember, it's okay to be angry. But no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. And stay vigilant, America, just like Bob Dylan. Stay vigilant.